The Astrea Trilogy Written and read by Seymour Hamilton Book Two The Men of the Sea Chapter Four In Which Astrea Learns the Lore of the Men of the Sea Part Three First Mirak and then Adramin swept his right fist to his throat and intoned the formula of acceptance. Then, as attention focused on him, Astrea swallowed, looked at Oron steadily, and imitated their gesture. At your command, Astrea repeated. He didn't like the subservience in the formal phrase, but he couldn't resist the drama of the occasion. Oron raised one slim white hand to eye height and rotated it a half turn at the wrist. The lines of men broke up, some returning immediately to their tasks, some of them talking in small groups as they went back to whatever they'd been doing. Estrella stood wondering what to do next until Mirac turned towards him. Right. You see that line of studs in the deck? After them's the quarter-deck. Family territory. I can cross the line and so can Batel, when we're going about our duties. But not the rest of the crew unless they're under orders. You're lucky. You don't even have to salute. But just remember that the separation cuts two ways. Don't go wandering around unless you're with me. Now, let's get started. We'll begin with Peggy's part of the ship. First, we'll clean the skylight. They went below for rags and brushes, with which Estrella cleaned the long, transparent cover that humped over the center line of the ship between the fore and mizzen masts. He had never seen so much or such thick glass. Some of it was in solid sheets as long as his forearm. Some was in smaller, random pieces held together with leading. As he worked to scour off dried salt spray, Mirak explained, Below the glass there's vats of sea water. It's warm down there, like a warm fog, making water with the salt taken out. You can see drops trickling down the inside of the glass, down to where the green plants are growing. Keep you healthy. When the cleaning was done, Mirak took him below into a space with a smell that made his eyes water and the back of his throat almost gag. Amidst a dozen evil-smelling bins stood an old woman no taller than Astrea's elbow. Peggy Lamborn, ship's gardener, meet Astrea, Estrea's son, said Mirak, wrinkling his nose at the smell. The ancient woman shook aside a strand of grey hair that had escaped the scarf over her head. She frowned at Astrea, adding even more wrinkles to her leathery face. Her voice was creaky but confident. Your da had little time for me and me growings, but me plants kept him fit, same as they will you, young Estrella. Estrella smiled at the familiar shortening of his name. And that's not all we do in here. Out of my garden in comes our fresh water. You show him, Mirak. Mirak pointed up to the skylight, through overarching greenery twice a man's height above them. In the middle hung a long boat-shaped object from which came gurgling noises as the ship rolled and pitched. "'In there's seawater and, uh, well, other stuff,' said Mirak with a sniff. "'You probably noticed it's warm in here.' Astrea nodded and sweat dripped off his nose. "'The skylight is cool, so it sweats pure water that trickles down to the storage tanks.' "'And into me garden,' added Peggin. Now tell him how we get fuel to cook and run the lights. Right. This is what we call Peg's Poop Show. Look here. Peggin turned taps on pipes between big barrels from which came swishing and hissing noises and a formidably unpleasant smell. Are they full of... Uh, asked Estrella. They sure are, Mirak grinned. Did you use the head last night? Estrella nodded. It all ends up down here, and what you're sniffing is a gas that burns with a nice blue flame to light your cabin and cook your porridge. So don't you ever turn on the tap under a lantern unless you're going to light it, and soon. First, it'll smell bad. More important, if there's enough of it in your cabin and then you strike a light, you'll blow yourself up and a fair piece of the ship with you. Well, don't. "'Stand there grinning at me,' said Peggy. "'The pair of you, you've got work to do, turning it over.' 
Mirac slid back the lid on two of what Estrella had first taken for storage chests. He took a deep breath through his nose, and as his stomach churned, wished he had not. He swallowed, took the shovel Mirac gave him, and the pair of them shoveled waste from one stinking bin to the next. Estrella remembered cleaning out Jeb's stable. This was much worse. After some time, Mirac paused and grinned at him. Thirsty? he asked. Estrella looked at the condensed water above his head dubiously and sniffed. Rest easy, said Mirac, handing him a bottle. We catch our drinking water from the rain. Estrella took a swig. Surrounded as he was by overwhelmingly pungent smell, he could not taste the water, but it relieved his thirst. Eventually Mirac stowed his shovel in its place and indicated to Estrella to do the same. "'Well, you didn't up, Chuck,' said Peggy. "'That's summit. Next time you come down here I'll get you working on a bunch of me potine.' Estrella nodded his head and tried to smile at the old woman who was looking up at him, her head on one side. He was clearly expected to ask about whatever potine was, but he held his mouth firmly shut. He followed Mirac out of Peggy's malodorous space back up the companionway. He made it to the upper deck with his teeth clenched together and stood on the weather side of the ship, breathing deeply. Mirac allowed him a few moments and then indicated the pumps where they could wash. They joined two lines of men who were trading positions alternately washing and pumping for each other. Mirac, are Will and Peggy related? No. But they're two of the three oldest aboard. We call them land-born, because they were born on land, before the wandering began. How long ago was that? Grandmaster's another land-born, and he's ten years short of the hundred. My grandfather is ninety? Estrella asked incredulously. He would have guessed no more than seventy-five or perhaps eighty. Mirac nodded, and then took his turn at one of the pumps, waving Estrella toward the other. Estrella pumped water for the man ahead of him in the queue, who happened to be Betel. Estrella nodded to him, searching for an appropriate greeting. "'Are you coming to me for hull integrity and damage control?' he asked in a flat, unemotional voice. "'Bugger off, Betel. You'll just confuse him,' said Mirac. Betel's expression did not change. He nodded and silently pumped for Estrella to put his head under the pump. Cold salt water ran into his nose and eyes, but when he straightened up he was rid of the smell from his morning's work. When he had shaken the water from his hair, Betel had disappeared, and when he looked around for Mirac, all he could see was the back of his head among a group of men who were disappearing down the forward companionway. Estrella saw Adramin watching, his thumbs hooked into his belt. At Estrella's questioning look, Adramin silently shrugged a shoulder towards the forward companionway. Estrella went where the gesture indicated. No sooner had he taken the first step below than he smelled fish stew and discovered he was ravenously hungry. He followed a line of men to a shipwide space where grey and white-haired heads were bent over their food. The clatter of plates, forks, and knives mingled with indistinct conversation. When he paused at the door, wondering where he would pick up his share of the food, first one, then half a dozen, then all of the heads changed to faces as the men stopped eating to stare at him. The space was suddenly silent. "'I'll have your food sent to your cabin immediately,' said Mirac loudly, appearing hastily at his elbow and steering him back the way he had come. Then he spoke softly for Estrella's ears alone. "'It's not the custom for command rank to mess with the men. Leave now. Behave as if you were only hurrying your meal along.' He disappeared down a passage before Estrella could reply. Adramin was watching as Estrella climbed red-faced back on deck. "'You might have told me,' said Estrella. "'How was I to know your customs?' Adramin's narrow lips twisted into a wry smile, enjoying Estrella's embarrassment. When he was once more in his cabin, a short, stoop-shouldered man brought him a tray, which he placed on a drop-down table Estrella had not noticed. Then he produced a low, folding chair from behind the cabin door and waved a hand, silently, inviting him to sit. Estrella bent forward, trying to see the man's face while he thanked him, but the sailor ducked his head even lower and hurried away without answering. 
the cabin door closed, and Estrella faced a mug of dark, sour-tasting beer, a bowl of green leaves, none of which he could identify, a bowl of fish stew cooled by its trip from the galley, and a chunk of thick, hard biscuit. Estrella's meal was lukewarm and unpalatable, but he ate it anyway, feeling angry and frustrated. He recalled the look of surprise on the faces of the sailors at their midday meal, and the caution in Mirak's voice that recalled his injunction not to venture alone into the crew's part of the ship. Adramin had tried to shame him. He had guessed that Estrella did not know that those related to the master had to eat alone in their cabins, while the rest enjoyed each other's company, not to speak of hotter, better-tasting food. He silently cursed Adramin for sending him to an embarrassing mistake, and all the men of the sea for their inscrutable customs. Once again Estrella had been marked as a stranger. This time the familiar, bitter resentment he had always felt at being an outsider was multiplied because he had been deceived. Suddenly, more than anything, he wanted to speak to Lindy. His chest heaved as if struggling against someone who was sitting on it, and his heart thumped. He thought he was going to be sick, but the focus of his discomfort was not his stomach. He heard his own voice as if he were listening to someone else. I'm sorry. I didn't want... Oh, Lindy, I wish you were here. He rolled back his sleeve and stared at the green stone on his bracelet, wondering if perhaps he might have made a connection between them the previous night. When the stone did not alter its green glow, doubt replaced hope, and with it came uncomfortable questions. What kind of a life was she living? And what was he inheriting, where Oron, Adramin, and the crew of Cygnus, the ones responsible for breaking up Spindrift and ravaging the village? He was afraid of what he might discover, but at the same time he knew that his words to the crew were true. He wanted to know how the green stones worked. His feelings were as double-edged as Oron's introduction. Oron only wants me for what he can make of me, and Adramin doesn't want me at all. And as usual, nobody cares a twisted fish-hook about what I want. Estrella spoke out loud at the moment a knock came on his door. Feeling foolish for talking to himself, he admitted the stooped man who took away his empty dish and cup, again without acknowledging Estrella's thanks. Moments later, Mirak arrived. He stood in the doorway and relayed an order. "'Down to the stern cabin, knock and wait for the master,' he said, and was gone before Estrella could question him. Estrella did as he was told, but before he could knock, Oron slid the door open in front of him. Estrella stepped back as his grandfather glided into the lamp-lit passage, his feet invisible below his cloak. One bony, long-fingered hand slid out from his cloak, indicating that Estrella was to follow. As he walked down the passageway behind Oron, Estrella felt the ship sway in its rhythmic dance through the water, but he could no longer hear the sea sounds around the hull, nor the subtle noises of wind in sails and rigging. The tall figure ahead of him walked smoothly down the dark passage, with none of the to-and-fro sway that marked the sailor's rolling gait. He stopped in front of the door that Mirak had called Forbidden. Estrella's palms dampened, and his fingers clenched. "'Enter,' ordered Oron, pointing a lean finger at the door. Estrella stretched out his fingers to where he expected a handle or a catch, but his hand only touched cool metal. He pushed, but the door did not open. His finger-ends tingled. He drew back his right hand and pushed again with his left. The metal was still cool to his touch, but this time Estrella felt a sudden thrill from his hand to above his elbow, where his bracelet encircled his arm. The door slid open noiselessly. "'Enter,' Oron repeated. Estrella stepped through the doorway, and Oron closed the door behind them. "'Your clasp admitted us,' said Oron quietly in the darkness, "'or rather you and your clasp. This confirms that you are indeed of the family.' Estrella blinked several times in the semi-darkness as the old man drew a dark cloth towards him, revealing a round table-top. Oron pushed up his left sleeve to his elbow, revealing a bracelet with a green stone like Estrella's. 
The master slid the bracelet to his wrist and passed it over the table. The light below his arm intensified, resolving itself into one central source and two other smaller lights. Astrea looked into the old man's deep-set eyes, lit eerily from below. "'Turn back your sleeve and reveal your clasp,' said Oron. "'Do not touch anything directly. Put even your fingertip on an unguarded shipstone, and you may not live to do it again.' Astrea unbuttoned his shirt-cuff and uncovered his bracelet. The table resembled a circular pit, wider than a man's outstretched arms, and deep as a full handspan. In its middle was a stone that blazed with a cold green fire. As his eyes adjusted to looking at the light, it occurred to Astraea that the stone would fit in the palm of his hand with his fingers barely encircling it. As he looked into the heart of the stone, he saw a white spear of light aligned with the ship's direction. He did not need Oron's warning. The stone was clearly dangerous. "'The light at the centre is Cygnus Shipstone,' said Oron. Astrea nodded. He turned his attention to a dim white line that wriggled across the stern half of the table. Astrea frowned as he made the connection to the sketches he'd made for a roaring jack on their way south. He was looking at the outline of the coast they were leaving behind. He stood on tiptoe to see the ragged line that marked the edge of the land letting his eye travel along the bays fjords and promontories on the chart he began to recognize shapes and interpret them against what he'd seen from the molly teen mouse astrea muttered as he saw what he took to be a river mouse behind a reef then he looked further north the village is he began and then stopped hoping he had been speaking softly enough that oron had not heard him how does it work he asked pointing to the bright line of the shore and saying the first thing that came into his mind that would deflect a possible question about his village. The shoreline is drawn with ink that glows in the stone's light. The extent of the chart is adjusted here and here. Oron pointed to hand-sized wheels set into the sides of the table. But that's for later. What else do you see? As his eyes accustomed to the dim space, Astrea distinguished more sources of light. Three large ones on the table itself, all of them dimmer than the stone at the centre, some on a shelf above the table, each about the size of his thumbnail. Astrea stared at the stones and then back at Oron's face. The large lights are ships? Astrea asked. Oron nodded. They are the ship's echo stones. These larger ones on the chart table are attuned to the ship stones of the rest of the fleet. There used to be more but now all but four are dark. Those small ones on the shelf, are they twinned to stones like mine? Oron did not follow Astrea's gaze. He spoke irritably, as if annoyed by the question, even though he conceded that it was reasonable by answering. The two brightest are echo-stones to the one you and I wear. The smaller one next to them is Adramin's. The lesser stones above the other ship's don't show, because they are too close to their respective shipstones. Never mind about them now. Attend to me. Today you will learn how to mark each ship's position. You will do this every day until we arrive together at the City of the Sea. Watch how this is done. Oron reached under the table and brought out what looked like a short walking stick. Holding it so that the hooked handle was away from him, one by one, he gently rolled the ship's echo-stones back and forth. Astrea saw that the surface of the table was some soft material that cupped around each stone, so that when Oron pushed with the stick, the fabric yielded and then reformed like a nest when the stone reached a new position. The process was slow but steady. When Oron started, one stone had been to the right of where Cygnus' stone pointed. Now it was somewhat closer, and it glowed stronger than before. "'What is that ship's name?' Astrea asked. "'Silver Swan. I have yet to ascertain the exact position of Elusive and Spindrift. They are still out of range.' Astrea drew a breath to say what he knew about Spindrift, but Oron continued before he had a chance to interrupt. "'You must learn how to seek the other ship-stones to know where other great ships are. 
These two are elusives and spindrifts, twin stones. Try with the elusive stone. Spindrift is still too far away. Estrella took the stick, and, wondering if there was any point to his trying, started to move the glowing stone back and forth. When it was even further ahead of Cygnus than Silver Swan, he thought he saw its light strengthen. Never mind, said Oron wearily. Elusive cannot be far. She must be still out of range. With a sudden confidence that surprised him, Astrea rolled the dull stone fully halfway around the circular table so that it was behind Cygnus stone. The stone made itself a little pocket in the dark surface of the table, glowing with almost the same intensity as the one Oron had moved. Oron made a sound, as if to say, lucky guess. Moving the echo stones is simple. The art is in how to shape a course for where we wish to go. Look at the stone on your arm. Where is the light point? In the same direction as that of Cygnus' shipstone. Yes. Now, can you redirect your stone's pointing light? Where? North? You can try, said Oron with a sigh that might have been the ghost of a laugh. Astrea frowned, concentrating as he had done when Lindy had been beside him, and as he had done the night before in his cabin. The light on his arm trembled slightly, and then swung confidently to point towards the port quarter. On the table in front of him Cygnus' shipstone pulsed, and then more than doubled the light it shed. Oron's face contorted, which in the green light made him look all the more ghastly. He took a sudden step forward and gripped the side of the table. Astrea looked up from the bracelet on his arm and saw that Cygnus' shipstone was pointing in the same direction as his own. As he watched, he heard the rattle and squeak of the steering gear, and felt the ship start to change course. Put it back! Oron's voice was sharp with surprise. Coax! Don't blast! Astrea relaxed his concentration, and both his stone and the shipstone once more pointed in the direction the ship had been sailing. Are you all right, Estrella? His words came just as Estrella was about to ask the same question. Instead of standing firm and erect, Oron was bent forward, clinging to the raised edge of the table. Estrella nodded. Do you know what you did? I redirected the shipstone, said Estrella. I started out to point my stone north, but then it was as if something stopped me, so I uh, pushed harder, and then it wasn't too difficult. Much easier than the first time I found north when I was ashore. You did more than that. You also sent a pulse northward that would set off any shipstone that was in the way. Fortunately, none was. Oron straightened his back and raised his chin. Estrella saw his eyes gleam in the light from the table. Could I have harmed anyone? Anyone who is in line with you and the shipstone, standing outside the protection of a room such as this one, would have been shaken if he was in sight and at sea. There's much to confuse the stones on land. Mountains and even big rocks can be enough to hide them. Estrella nodded. He was not sure what he had done, but it had altered Oron's attitude towards him. The old man's voice was softer when he spoke again, as if revealing an arcane secret. Without men of our blood and line, even the great stones would be dead as pebbles on a beach, dead as they will be when I am gone, if you are not here to continue. With you here there is hope that the wandering will not end. What of Adramin? asked Astrea. He wears a stone, a toy beside yours, a grain of sand beside Cygnus' stone. Commanders wear them to find their way home. They are enslaved to the ship's stone, and their wearers can do little with them. You have a stone of command, as I do. Only you and I can enter this space. You have inherited the gift, but now you must learn how to use it, gently. He paused, and when he spoke again the wonder was gone from his voice, replaced by a dry cynicism. But you must also master the arts of navigation, which will take time, since I doubt you can do much more than count. Still— we must make a start. Come with me. Astrea was about to say that he could do a lot more than that, 
but continued his strategy of concealing what he knew. He watched as Oron carefully covered the circular table and then followed as the master palmed the metal door open and led the way to the stern cabin. There Oron silently indicated the chair at the table where books, papers, and instruments were laid out between thin rails that stopped them from sliding should the ship pitch or roll. "'Do you recognize any of these?' "'The clock, of course,' said Estrella, "'except that it's more complicated than the ones at the village. "'They're not much use. "'No two of them say the same time. "'This one is accurate. "'And the rest of these? "'Rulers, dividers, protractor, and that's a compass. "'I played with one when I was a child. "'If you move it around, the needle swings this way and that. "'This one doesn't. It points north, when we're not too far north. Then, as you say, the needle swings this way and that. What's that? Estrella asked, pointing to a brass instrument with semicircular hoops around it, about the extent of a big man's hand. A sextant, Oron replied, an instrument whose use you must learn. Oron sighed and sat down slowly. First, you must clear your mind of any thought that this is a magical or supernatural process, whatever anyone says to you. They know nothing of what we do behind the forbidden door, and you must never speak of it. This prohibition also applies to the use of the sextant, which they may see from a distance as we make our observations, but which must never fall into their hands. Astrea frowned down his urge to challenge and argue. Navigation, Oron continued, sliding a piece of paper across the table in front of Estrella, is the application of certain mathematical and geometrical principles that you must learn to manipulate through the laws of logic. Let us begin. This is a triangle. It has three sides and three angles. What is more, it is a right-angled triangle, which has certain properties that make it possible for us to navigate. The principle is that Estrella could hold back no longer. If it's a triangle with a square angle in it, and you know how long one side is, or one other angle, you can figure out the remaining angle or side. They stared at one another across the table. Who taught you this? Scarm, Scar-arm Ian, an elder in my village. Perhaps this is not going to be quite as bad as I had feared, said Oron. Astrea's first lesson in the navigation arts of the men of the sea had begun. For the rest of the afternoon, Oron asked question after mathematical question, most of which Astrea could understand and often answer with confidence. Finally the old man nodded. "'We can build on that,' he said. "'Now you may leave until the evening meal, which you will take here with me and your cousin. First. Shave. There are no landsmen's beards aboard this ship. And give me that ridiculous dagger at your waist. There's no knife-fighting aboard the Cygnus. Astrea drew the knife Damon had given him and handed it hilt-first to Oron. The old man stood, hefted the weapon in evaluation, turned, and with one smooth gesture threw it out the open scuttle into the ship's wake. Astrea frowned. The knife had been a generous gift— and what was more, he'd enjoyed the feeling of its weight around his waist, and at the same time felt a little ashamed of liking a weapon that had no other use than killing or wounding. What Oron had done was both an annoyance that he no longer had a valuable possession, and a subtle relief in that he was no longer proclaiming himself a knife-fighter. "'Get a proper seaman's knife from the stores,' said Oron. "'I have my father's,' said Estrella, showing it to Oron as he spoke. Oron grunted, took the knife, and turned it over in his hands as if trying to feel something within its bone handle, and then returned it to Estrella. More proof, he muttered to himself, then spoke commandingly. Now go. Estrella wondered for a moment if he should salute, decided against it, and let himself out of the cabin. Closing the door behind him, he took a deep breath and stood still. Then he climbed up onto the deck, walked astern, and stood staring into the wake. The session had shown him that Oron believed the ability to navigate was somehow linked to the family lineage, which, whether or not it was true, 
meant that the old man needed Astraea's power over the green stones. As he had guessed the night before, any emotion his grandfather felt was for the ship and its mission, not for Astraea himself. "'Well done, Astraea,' he imitated sarcastically. "'Your power over the stones amazed me. How surprised I am to find that you're even somewhat intelligent, grandson. However did you learn so much in your primitive little village? It's astonishing that a landlubber could have taught you.' He paused and then spoke in his own voice. "'So glad you liked me, grandfather. It's nice to be appreciated.' "'The master got under your skin.' Estrella turned to see Mirac beside him, a faint smile on his wind-tanned face. "'I've had happier times,' said Estrella. Mirac's grin broadened into a smile. "'Judging from the looks of the girl you left behind, I'd be inclined to agree.' Estrella tensed, and Mirac raised both his hands, palms upwards. "'No offence. I didn't like what Dramin had us do with you and her. I was under orders.' and if it makes you feel any better, she was on her feet and shouting as we pulled away. He spoke softly so that only Estrella could hear. Thank you for that, Mirak, said Estrella. He masked a rush of conflicting emotions with as even a voice as he could manage. Mirak had offered cold comfort. For several heartbeats he stood still, simultaneously damning Adramin, being grateful to know that at least Lindy was unhurt, worrying that she would hate him for leaving her, and, above all, wishing he could try to explain to her what had happened. "'Then, if you're ready,' said Mirac, interrupting Astraea's thoughts by returning to his clipped, business-like style, "'there's more to learn.' For the balance of the day Astraea worked on deck. Compared to his time with Oron, the work was simple. He scrubbed, sluiced, cleaned, lubricated, and tidied and in the process he learned the name and operation of a bewildering number of halyards, downhauls, sheets, topping lifts and preventers, and the location of their belays, as well as the operation of windlasses, capstans, and davits. Mirac was an effective teacher. He explained how things worked, and made sure Astraea could do each job properly. Most of the time Astraea knew at least the principles involved, but even so, the size and complexity of everything aboard Cygnus was daunting. Where he had been familiar with the standing and running rigging necessary for Molly's one mast and two sails, now he had to understand all three masts and the five sails that Cygnus carried most of the time, not counting special sails and their rigging for light airs or storms. Later, when most of the sailors were at work below, Mirac left Astraea sorting out a set of tangled halyards. Adramin appeared at his elbow. Do you have the smallest idea of what you're doing? I'm trying to untangle the halyard on the telltale pennant, said Estrella evenly, meeting his cousin's eyes. Somehow it's wrapped around the head of the sail, and the steersman can't see it properly. Then why don't you go up there and fix it? Estrella stared first at Adramin and then at the masthead, so high above the deck that only by squinting against the blue of the sky was it possible to see the long, tapered flag that had coiled itself around the sail? A real sailor would go up hand over hand, but we can oblige you with a chair. You there, and you too, Betel. Rig a hoist for the commander to be. Some day. Maybe. Adamin's voice dripped sarcasm. The blue-jacketed boatman appeared from behind one of the longboats in its cradle, and Estrella saw that, once again, his face was so stolid and expressionless that it told him nothing. The man seemed entirely lacking in the curiosity shown by the rest of the crew. Betel chose a spare halyard, knotted a loop in one end, and silently gestured to Estrella that he should sit in the noose and hold the knot in the rope that was at his chin. Betel beckoned, and two sailors threaded the downhaul of the halyard through a block at the foot of the mast, and took the rope over their shoulders. Adramin nodded, and all three ran towards the bow. Estrella was jerked off his feet and yanked into the air, the rope biting into the outside of his thighs. Before he could register fear, he was rising swiftly upwards in the shadow of the sail, his breath taken away. He looked up and saw the rope vanishing into the masthead. His stomach lurched as he swung outboard, high above the water in the lee of the ship. He looked down between his feet and saw Adramin's upturned face diminishing below. 
the rope twirled above him so that he faced the horizon, where the sea met the sky in a smooth blue-on-blue -blue line. Then the ship swayed, and his shoulder rasped against the sail, almost breaking his grip on the rope above the knot at his chin. As Cygnus swung back, a lucky kick twirled him to face the mast, which was now close enough for him to half-climb, half-walk up its weather-worn black trunk, now shrunk from several paces around to less than the thickness of his leg. Estrella felt the wind buffet the mast, whine through the halyards, and sigh along the edge of the sail. The squeak of rope through a block intensified into a final squawk as he approached the very top. He changed his grip just in time. Had he continued to hold on to the rope above the loop in which he sat, his fingers would have been jammed into the sheave. Estrella's head was level with the truck, the wooden cap at the top. He wrapped his legs around the mast and clung to the stiff triangular top of the sail with one hand. For the first time he was able to do more than glance around him. His shoulder pressed against the main brace. He felt the vibration of wind thrumming along the tarry rope that ran horizontally to the next mast and the next. He looked down. The deck was a narrow strip, slashed diagonally by the sails and their shadows, surrounded by the blue-green sea. He could see Adramin looking up at him, though he could not make out his expression. Astrea swallowed before fear could tighten his throat, and looked around a horizon that surrounded him like the edge of a huge bowl, Cygnus at its centre. He was far, far higher than he had been on the Molly's mast. He knew that a fall to the deck would kill or cripple him, and that he would drown if he fell into the sea. Nonetheless, Astrea felt once again a kinship with a seagull that hovers on the wind before winging off on its invisible paths. Though he still held firmly onto the halyard and mast, he no longer clung with the desperate strength of near panic. Quite calmly, as if someone had pointed it out to him, Astrea noticed the pennant tangled around the top of the mast, only a few handspans fluttering beyond the leech line of the sail. It was the work of a moment to tug the long, thin flag free so that it floated out and away. Estrella admired the white streamer as it twisted sinuously in the wind, wondering whether he could draw the way it curled and swung, so flexible and jaunty above the knife-edge of the sail. A sudden downward drop brought his stomach to his throat. He clung to the rope with both hands as his feet slid away from either side of the mast. He plummeted downward, letting out a yell that competed with the receding screech of the block at the mast-head. Astrea had time to decide that the men who had hauled him up must have let go entirely, and to feel fiercely angry at their fatal mistake, before he felt the rope cut into his thighs as his free fall was checked into a controlled landing. A quick heartbeat later, his feet thumped on the deck, and he sprawled at Oron's feet. "'What do you think you were doing?' the old man demanded. Astrea struggled out of the loop in the rope and stood up. "'Untangling the pennant,' he gasped, and then, after a breath, started to gabble excitedly. "'It's a lot higher than the Molly's masthead. There was nothing to see. Except see. It was like flying. I—' "'Go to your quarters, Estrella,' interrupted Oron sternly. "'Stay there until you are summoned to the evening meal. You were foolhardy. No safety lines, variable winds. The ship could have lost you.' What were you thinking, Bettel? Have you no more sense than to obey the command of someone who joined the ship this very day? The smile on Estrella's face abruptly turned into an angry frown. Uh, yes, uh, Skip, uh, Master, at, at your command. Estrella turned and walked toward the companionway. Any guilt he might have felt that Bettel was being blamed had been driven out of his head by Oron's scorn the pain of his bruised thighs, and the knowledge that only luck had saved him from crushed fingers. As he walked away, nursing his resentment, a movement caught his eye. He looked towards the bow and glimpsed Adramin's black-clad back, half concealed by the foremast. He was talking to Mirak as if he had nothing to do with what had just happened. Estrella descended to his cabin, slammed the door, and sat on the bed, muttering, "'Oh, dear, my grandson, are you all right? I hope you didn't hurt yourself. Could it be that your treacherous cousin put you up to it?' 
Estrella fumed until Mirak knocked on his door some time later. "'You should be at the master's quarters in a count of five hundred. Wear your good rig.' "'Thanks,' said Estrella, but his tone of voice was bitter. "'Takes you out of yourself being aloft, doesn't it?' "'Yes,' said Estrella, recalling the flying moment at the masthead. "'It was amazing. "'It's not for everyone, though. "'Drammin hoped you'd throw up or wet yourself, but you spoiled his fun. "'Now, get along aft or you'll be late.' "'There was no mistaking the approval in Mirak's voice.' Mirak, my grand, uh, the master, told me to shave. Do you have funny you should ask? said Mirak, handing him a cutthroat razor, a cube of soap, and a leather strop. A short time later, shaved, with only a small cut under one ear, washed, and wearing a clean white shirt, Estrella knocked on Oron's door. When it opened, he was surprised to be looking over the bent back of an elderly man so stooped that only his yellow-white hair and grey-clad shoulders were visible. The man ushered him into the cabin and then disappeared behind a screen in the corner. Belatedly, Estrella recognized the man as the same person who had brought food to his cabin earlier that day. Evening light streamed through two large windows set in Cygnus' stern, onto a square of white-scrubbed deck between a pair of long brass-bound boxes that had been secured to the ship's sides and topped with canvas cushions. Estrella went round a table in the centre of the cabin, sat on the port-side box, and looked out at the ship's wake a man's height below. Close to the ship the hull cut the gentle swells into white swirls. Farther away the waves rolled into the horizon, where the sun was a red glow behind thin cloud. For the first time since he'd been kidnapped, Estrella was no longer tense against whatever might happen next. Somewhere over the horizon was land, and on it Lindy. Then his moment of calm turned to concern. Would she wait for him? For how long? Too far for a lubber to swim, a voice broke in on his thoughts. He looked up to see Adramin standing, one thumb hooked into the belt of his black shark-skin breeks, his white shirt slightly reddened by the setting sun. But not too far for a man of the sea to sail a small boat. Adramin laughed a short barking noise with no humour in it. Your father tried that. Lot of good it did him. To the table, said Oron behind him. They both turned to see the stooping man help Oron out of his cloak, under which his clothes were solid black, except for a white collar and cuffs. Estrella waited until Oron and Adramin had chosen their chairs and went to the remaining seat. Adramin stood with his hands clenched behind him. Oron's long fingers grasped the chair back. He slowly raised his head and spoke in the measured tone of one who repeats an oath or a prayer. What is the law? Preserve the ship? Obey the master, keep faith with those who serve throughout the fleet, and shun land until the time foretold, lest corruption be renewed and honour lost, Adramin replied. Oron and Adramin pulled back their chairs and sat. Astrea copied them, feeling both ignorant and curious. The bent man served them in silence. Astrea looked at his plate which held a slab of meat beside an unappetizing pile of some green plant. He waited until Oron and Adramin had begun to eat and copied them carefully. "'Well, cousin,' said Adramin, "'how do you like your first taste of whale-meat?' Ignoring the sarcastic tone, Estrella answered evenly, "'It's been preserved in brine, as we do, but it's not as we prepare it at the village.' You get the occasional dead whale washed ashore, then. We take them if they come in past the headlands. It's risky, but the oil is welcome. I kill from the longboat in the open ocean. It's the best sport the sea has to offer. Man against monster. Estrella did not reply at once. He'd seen the huge eye of a dying whale, and he remembered seeing intelligence there. So much life in one of those huge bodies. So much oil, said Adramin. When I killed a whale last summer, we rendered the fat aboard. It took us weeks before the stink left us. The cabin had been growing darker as they ate, 
and now in the stern windows Estrella could see the last of a peach-coloured sunset above the horizon, the clouds lit from below by the vanished sun. Oron raised a hand, and the grey-clad figure emerged from the deepening shadows, lit the lamp on the table, and withdrew into one of the shadowy corners. The meal proceeded in silence until near the end, when the elderly man had brought steaming hot mugs of some tea-like liquid. Oron turned his head towards Estrella. "'Is there sickness in your village?' "'Well, there's the winter sniffles, but unless you're very old or weak, they're nothing to worry about. And there's accidents.' "'Accidents? Broken bones? Fingers missing from when fishing line gets wrapped around a knuckle? Bad cuts like scar-arm scar Ian? His left arm won't straighten. Things like that. No pestilence, no history of plague? Estrella shook his head, thinking of the wrecked ship, Spindrift, and the deserted village. And Estrella, how did he die? At sea, said Estrella, an accident. It happens, said Adramin casually, if you're not careful. Estrella felt his eyes narrow as he glared at Adramin. He was taking a breath to defend his father's memory, when Adramin pursued what he took for an advantage. "'So have you mastered the magic of the stones yet, cousin?' "'It's not magic.' "'Then you know how the stones work.' Adamin's tone was ripe with sarcasm. Estrella had the fleeting thought it would be very pleasant to throw the contents of his mug into his cousin's face. Instead he took a long breath and explained patiently as if to a child. "'You know those tiny lightnings you sometimes see on a cold, dry night when you pull a woolen tunic over your head?' The stone feeds on even smaller lightnings we all have in our bodies, and that some of us can control. Who told you that? Oron's voice was sharp. Gar, said Estrella without thinking. Gar? Adramin repeated incredulously. A lubber with a stone? His stone was dark, said Estrella. Then he— Estrella stopped, seeing Adramin and Oron exchanging glances. Gianfar? asked Adramin. Oron's eyes gleamed as he raised both eyebrows. Estrella looked from one face to the other. "'Did this person,' Oron asked deliberately, "'did he say anything else about the stones?' He'd been a sailor, I could tell from the way he spoke, and he knew how to use a stone. He told me, "'Think north,' and I did. And, well, it did, just like today, when I made the shipstone move its pointer. "'Gianfar,' said Oron. I should have known he had a hand in this. That wasn't the name he told me the day he showed me his drawings, began Estrella, and stopped. Hand of Gianfar, he quoted softly, and then clamped his jaw shut. Neither Oron nor Adramin appeared to notice. Everyone called him Gar, even the men, said Adramin scornfully. They say that it was what he called himself when he was little. He couldn't say his whole name, so he shortened it. "'Where is he now?' asked Oron. "'Dead,' said Estrella. "'He died helping me get away from some lubberly argument, I'm sure,' Adramin completed. "'Gianfar loved trouble.' "'Was he from Cygnus?' Estrella asked. "'His father was my brother,' said Oron. "'Did he know my father?' They conspired together, said Adramin, relishing Astrea's anxious look. They were lucky at the trial. Mutineers usually hang or try that long swim you were thinking about. They conspired to do what? That's enough, Adramin. We will not speak of this further. Oron pressed his hands on the table to lever himself upright. Once standing, he leaned forward and looked down at Estrella. Before he could ask any more of the questions that were bubbling up in his mind, Oron's steady gaze quelled him. Estrella, tonight you serve the first watch. Mirac will assist you, but you have the responsibility. May I ask? Unless your question pertains to your duties, no. Estrella clenched his teeth. Then go. Follow the law. Right. Uh, I, I mean, at your command. As he shut the cabin door, Estrella heard Adramin's snort of disapproval, followed by indistinct murmurs. Tantalizingly close to finding out why Gar and his father had left Cygnus, Estrella lingered at the door, 
but when he could hear nothing, he climbed the companionway and out onto the deck. The ship was dark, save for a pale gleam from the wheelhouse that silhouetted the hunched shoulders of the steersman, whose hands moved in the ceaseless task of guiding Cygnus on her way south. A gibbous moon was rising behind wisps of cloud, lighting the occasional white cap in a steadily rolling sea. He looked up past the curve of the sails to where the mastheads swayed against the dark sky. To the north, Astraea saw stars that had been overhead when he and Lindy had camped on their journey from the castle. To the south were constellations new to him. Some of his frustration ebbed, but his mind itched with the combination of unanswered questions and annoyance at being the butt of his cousin's scorn. Mirak appeared silently from the wheelhouse. "'You're in charge of the ship for the next six hours. Your main task is to stay awake and ready in case there's an emergency. If it's a little one, we'll handle it. If it goes to the safety of the ship or takes us off course, you'll wake the master. You won't be surprised to learn that he hates having his beauty sleep disturbed, and you already know that he can be, well, shall we just say, grumpy. And if tomorrow morning he discovers that something went wrong and you did not wake him, he will be seriously annoyed, and that you can do without. So, are you confident? Astraea swallowed and nodded. Good. Always be confident, whether you feel it or not. Let us now make a turn around the deck together. You'll tell me what sails need trimming, and I will summon sleepy people to do your bidding. On our way we'll sneak up on the lookouts and try to catch them napping, so that you can report them tomorrow morning when they will undergo unpleasant punishments. You'll check that we're on course, and make sure whoever's on the wheel is doing his job, and while you're doing that I'll go fetch us a hot drink from the galley and then we'll do the whole routine all over again, until Commander Adramin emerges from his soft bed, rested, smiling, and happy to relieve us, about five and a half hours from now. You will then go to your cabin to have what feels like no sleep at all before it's time for tomorrow's breakfast. Don't you just love the seafaring life? Despite his qualms, Astraea chuckled. Now, let's make the first round. It took them the best part of an hour, during which neither Astraea nor Merak found anything amiss. When they returned to the wheelhouse, Astraea went in to check on the man on the wheel, and Merak disappeared below decks in search of hot drinks. When he returned with a steaming jug and a handful of mugs, he found Astraea steering the ship, intently watching a spear of white light, which he guessed was reflected up from the forbidden room onto a pane of glass. The steersman stood beside him, his bald head gleaming in the pale light. He was watching Astraea swing the wheel this way and that to compensate for the tendency of waves to push the bow off course. "'It isn't as easy as it looks,' said Astraea. "'I can't hold Cygnus nearly as close to our heading as you can.' "'Well, sir, I've been at it now for close on forty-five years.' "'Then I should let you do your job before I wake the master with a wavering course.' "'I brought enough for the rest of the what?' said Mirak. "'With your permission?' "'Oh, of course,' said Astraea. "'You and I can stand lookout while the men have their drink.' Astraea saw Mirak and the steersman exchange a quick look as Mirak handed him a mug. "'Mirak, was there something wrong with what I said?' Astraea asked as he and Mirak went forward. "'Not a thing. Trying a trick at the wheel is what your father did. That and sharing jobs so that people can have a mug up. Your dad did it every time.' Dramin wouldn't even have thought of it. They walked the deck in silence for a few paces until Astraea decided to ask the question that was troubling him most. Why did my father and Gar, Gianfar, leave Cygnus? Ah, that's a story that goes way back a long way to before Whisper was lost. Her master, Nash, he that was Gar's dad, always held that the fleet should return to land as soon as it was safe to do so. The other masters thought him near to being an oath-breaker. Now, when the whisper went down, young Gar was about your father's age. He and Estrella, your dad, grew up together here aboard Cygnus. The two of them got on like a couple of dolphins playing around the ship's bow. Then someone heard Gar talking about what we all knew his dad had thought, 
and that someone ratted on them, spreading the word that they were planning a mutiny. And at the next city of the sea it all came out in council, and even beyond to the crews. Everyone took sides. Some said they were oath-breakers and should hang. Some thought they were innocent. A few thought they were the victims of a jealous plot. Some, and this was only a whisper among best friends, thought they were damn right and that the wandering should end. Near as I can make out, it went down in council this way. Siv was all for stringing them up. Twister thought they were in the right of it. The Dirty Duck thought they were innocent, and Cygnus meaning the master. Siv? The Twister? The Dirty Duck? Australia asked. Oh, you wouldn't know, would you, said Nerek. Right, I'll go back a step. Five ships. Cygnus, that's us. Whisper had Nash for master. He and just about everyone but his son Gar were lost about forty years ago. Nash had a twin sister, Miessa, although to see you you'd never know because she's a tough one, and that's for sure. She's in command of Silver Swan. She's partly square-rigged, the ship, that is, and hard to handle, especially now there's only women aboard. She used to be the fleet's nursery. Nursery? Till the childless years began, something more than a dozen years ago, we were a regular floating city. Since then the seaborne have been getting fewer and fewer. But that's another story. Getting back to the names, those of us who bunk before the mast call Silver Swan the Dirty Duck. And there's Elusive, the Sieve, sometimes the Leaky Sieve, and she's commanded by Mufrid, Framin's dad. Mufrid is a son of Oron, said Astraeus. Of course, weren't you listening? Last of all, this Spindrift, commanded by Alnair. The Twister wasn't at the last city of the sea, though most everyone suspects Alnair of going lubber, because he's the only master who isn't a son or a grandson of Zubin, the first grandmaster. Zubin? The one who took us all a-wandering all these many years long ago. Oron's dad, father of our misfortunes, oh, forget I said that, preserver of our health and freedom, is what I said. Remember that. Zubin took us away from the pestilence ashore. He's also the one who started this whole daft business of naming people for stars. Astraea stared into the night as the moon dimmed behind a cloud. Marek's words tugged at a memory he could not quite place. He also had the bleak feeling that he had heard more than he could take pleasure in knowing, but less than he needed to know. Then it was all in the family, my family. My grandfather, uncle, and aunt decided to... What did they decide to do with Gar and my father? Like I said, it's not easy to know what went on in the council, cause I wasn't there, and sure as storms in winter the masters will never talk about it. My guess is that Oran had the deciding vote, and he played it to keep the fleet going and the pair of them alive, just. The others went for a swim. The others? There were three men who were supposed to be in on the plot, or who knew about it. Oran deep-sixed them. He what? Mirat gave him a sharp look, and his voice became hard. Their hands were tied, and they were stood up on the stern rail. Oran pushed them in, same as always. He what? It's the master's job. Better than having one of the crew be hated as the executioner. Astraea was aghast. It was the fear of death that kept the men obedient. Death at the hands of his grandfather. Does this happen often? I've seen it a few times. You don't forget a thing like that. But mutiny has to be punished, they say. But my father and uncle... Estrella and Gianfar were of the family, so they weren't done the way someone like me would be. They were sent on a mission, or a punishment, or to their deaths, or for a chance to prove their loyalty to the oath. It depends whose version of the story you hear. They were dropped in a skimmer not far from where we picked you up two nights ago. A skimmer? A whole lot smaller than the longboat, sailed by one man, at a pinch too. They were to be allowed back aboard when the next moon was full. I guess they were supposed to come back and tell us they'd been wrong and they were sorry, or that the lubbers were all dead or sick or something like that, but they didn't. They were supposed to come back? Mirak nodded. At least that's what we all thought when the master brought us back into these waters the next month, but the two of them weren't there. And they weren't there again, and again, and again. We were up and down this coastline for months close enough to smell the land breezes. Then we wandered some more for, what is it, seventeen, eighteen years? Too long, anyway. This spring, Oron brought us back. 
Don't ask me why. I think I know, said Estrella. He rolled back his sleeve so that Mirak could see the green stone on his bracelet. This came back to life earlier this year. Mirak let out a low whistle. Estrella's stone. So, you really are his son. He looked quickly around. Best not talk much more about this. The lookouts are coming back. Estrella spent the rest of his watch thinking about what he had heard. Mirak prompted him when it was time to make rounds of the deck. On the last tour, Estrella paused on their way back to the command position. Mirak, tell me about my father. He had a clasp. Your clasp. He could work with shipstone. Gar had a clasp like it, and he could navigate as well. Adramin's got a little ring. He can't do diddly. He never could. Made him seriously jealous of Estrella and Gar. That went double for his father, Mufrid, cause Oron never gave him a clasp either. Dramin's a sailor, mark you, knows his stuff, though he's not what you'd call cuddly. But Mufrid, well, he's another kettle of fish. But nobody can't say nothing about him, because he's the man who gets recruits and supplies. Why can't they say? Because he's not supposed to deal with the lubbers, and he does. But what about Shan Land? Oron sounds as if he's strict about that. He looks the other way, because we need what Mufrid gets to keep the ships sailing. That's why. And right now we need a whole lot more supplies and replacements, too, so that that gives him a hold over us. And even the master. Replacements? You mean more men? Boys are good, men are better. Kidnapped like me? Pretty much like that, only not so polite. Estrella decided not to investigate the extent of Mirak's understatement. He deliberately returned to the subject of Gar and his father. But why would Oron get rid of the two men who could carry on? Weren't they the only two who could help him, and, well, inherit from him? Mirak shook his head. Damned if I know. He had to do something, I guess. Perhaps he hoped they'd come back. Maybe he just didn't want to shove his son and nephew over the side. Astrea frowned. Every question he asked produced unpleasant answers, but he needed to know more. Tell me more about... Not now. It's what's changed. Right, here's how you turn over command to Dramin. Repeat after me. Lights are bright, nothing's in sight, we're on course and the wind holds. Then you tell him the sails we're carrying, starting at the bow. Light airs jib, foresail, mesensail, and mainsail. Estrella dutifully repeated the formula for Mirac, and moments later to Adramin. He was still wide awake when he went below at the end of the watch, and remained so even after he had climbed into his bed. In one night he had discovered more about his father's origins than ever before, and though he still felt the urge to learn the lore of the men of the sea, he was appalled at how Oron maintained command. His grandfather was an executioner. Astrea could not exorcise the mental picture of Oron pushing men over the stern to drown in Cygnus' wake. But as he thought about all that Mirak told him, he began to see connections between the revelations. He knew, or he hoped that he knew, why his father and uncle had rebelled against Oron, and why they had chosen to remain on shore where they would always be strangers, rather than serve under a tyrannical master. But there was still a nagging worry that they might have shared Oron's ruthlessness, or participated in the murderous side of the men of the sea that he had seen at the village where the spindrift was beached. And what had he inherited? If circumstances arose, would he too become a compassionless killer? He had felt this fear before, even expressed it to Lindy. Then he had tried to warn her of the darkness he guessed might be within him. Or had he only been searching for reassurance that she would not forsake him? He remembered that she had said something about not blaming himself for what men of the sea had done. But it was one thing to suspect something he did not know for certain, another to know that he was closely related by blood and heritage to men capable of such inhumanity. If she knew what was inside him, would she still want to know him? In the moments before Adramin had knocked on the door of their room at the Black Sheep, Lindy had calmed his fears. He strove to recall her exact reply, and when he could not remember, he tried to see her face in his mind's eye, but all he could conjure was a memory of the drawings he had done of her. He eventually slept, but his dreams were troubled and confused. 
You have been listening to the Estrella Trilogy, Book Two, The Men of the Sea, written and read by Seymour Hamilton. All three books are available in electronic and paper formats from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Chapters. Visit astreatrilogy.com for more about Astrea's world. This audio version is licensed under the United States Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0. You have been listening to the Astrea Trilogy Book 2, The Men of the Sea, written and read by Seymour Hamilton. All three books are available in electronic and paper formats from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Chapters. Visit astreatrilogy.com for more about Astrea's world. This audio version is licensed under the United States Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0.